The following is brought to you by Dustin Campbell, Daily Tech News Show, Andy Beach, Nick Wood, and Craig. Welcome, everybody, to the Politics, Politics, Politics podcast for June 25th, 2021. It's your old pal, Justin Robert Young. Back in Austin, Texas, off the plane, out of New York. Had a great time, though, man. Had an amazing time. Uh, In fact, after we were done recording the interview with um, Andrew Zarian, we went out to a bar and just had a very quintessential Queens bar conversation with a random regular. <laughs> uh, the world, the, the, the word, the word hooers was said, which I, I thought was very funny. Uh, there was a story told about a, a best Western on uh, Fort Lauderdale beach with a proprietor named numbers Raymond. it was great i hopefully you guys really liked it but you're also gonna really love this episode because these never fail indeed the triforce of truth the political trifecta the troika of all troikas we're back Myself, Justin Robert Young, joined by Congressional Dishes, Jen Briney, joined by the Political Orphanages, Andrew Heaton. I figured this was a good time for us to kind of take a high-level look at the COVID process. Reports are that Joe Biden wants to use July 4th as an unofficial turning point wherein the focus of his presidency will begin to move less from a COVID first perspective and more toward an economy first perspective. And if we are at said inflection point, it feels like the right time for us to talk to each other about where we are, how we feel what the government responses have been and what they should be going forward. So without further ado, let's bring everybody on. But first. Welcome everybody to the politics, politics, politics program and yet another gathering of to, for my taste, the finest minds in the world of politics, the political troika, the, poli- the political triad from the congressional dish, Jen Briney, how you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me back. And of course, the political orphan himself, Andrew Heaton joins us yet again. How you doing? Hello, Justin, and hello, Jen. A pleasure to be here. I wanted to submit this to our, our little meeting of the minds because... Uh, I just came back from New York City, one of the hardest hit in uh, America for COVID. 
Jen, you are are sometimes based in L.A., the other hardest hit city for COVID. Both had very, very harsh uh, lockdown procedures. But when I was there over the last few days, it kind of seemed back to normal. Things were if, if, if you didn't know if you had been in a coma the last year and a half, it kind of just looked like a random Monday in the five boroughs. So I just want to kind of submit it to you guys. Like, where are we right now as we record this in late June in America with COVID, both where we came from and then possibly where we're going? We'll start with Jen. Well, so I've actually been traveling a lot in the last month. Month We've had a lot of family emergencies. So I've been in California, Oregon, Washington, and Las Vegas. And each state has a completely different vibe. So like here in Seattle, it still very much feels like we are in COVID. Like there's people walking outside with masks by themselves. Um, masks are everywhere. Anytime you go indoors, there's a lot of places that are still closed. Um, mo- I mean, you can eat indoors, but most people are eating outdoors. But then I went to Vegas and <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, what's funny is like you laugh and I thought the reputation that was like, you know, Vegas, anything goes and there's just hardly any masks. I'd say like, it's yeah. funny when you walk into the casinos, it's like unvaccinated people are still requested to wear masks. And I know that the stats are that we're like 60% vaccinated as a country. And yet I'd say there's 2% of the people walking around wearing yeah. masks. So, I mean, obviously there's a lot of unvaccinated walking around and it was a weird vibe there because there was nothing to do. There were no shows, there were no museums, like there was nothing. And so it was just basically like people walking into eating all of the lines were so long for everywhere that you could stop and get food. It was a very strange vibe. And so it just feels like we're in these in-between times. Yeah. And it's all super local. Yeah. I just don't think that we can go and say, like, this is where we are as a country. That this is America. That this is. I mean, but I think that we can put things into, if not maybe one gigantic category, then maybe a few separate buckets of like there are places that are very 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 this is this is front of mind for them there are some places that very much want to get beyond it vegas is an interesting case because they've got to cater to everybody and so mm. from the from the most like uh, vaccines give me magnetism powers and i'll never uh, i'll never get it uh, to uh, if you could please just shoot me up once a week uh, it would make me feel better uh, uh, while i still wear my mask outdoors They've got it. They've got to be there for everybody. Heaton, what's your take on this? Uh, So I I was in Washington, D.C. last month for very legal purposes, and I was there for (laughs) about a week. And I I thought that it was actually the most interesting place that I've been. I've I've traveled a fair amount uh, because I I was in over the last few months. Now, granted, this is since January, but I've been in Nashville. I've been in uh, Charleston. I've been in New York a couple of times. Then I was in D.C. most recently. D.C. was the most interesting because D.C., the restaurants and bars are now open. And I don't believe, based on what I saw, that there's any type of seating restriction. So you go in. You take off your mask, you sit down, and you can eat and drink like it's a normal place. But the moment you go outside, everybody in D.C. is still putting a mask on. So I'm like, just to be very clear on this here, none of us are wearing masks indoors. However, (laughs) when we go outside where we do not need to wear masks based on all CDC data. We're all putting on masks. So DC's this bizarro version. And then like, I'm in Oklahoma. I'm recording this in Tulsa. Tulsa, I think, is nice in that Tulsa, I think, 
probably has a decent vaccination rate, the city proper. And so like they're basically the, the day that the, the CDD, uh, CDC said, you don't need to wear a mask if you're vaccinated. Everyone in Tulsa went, okay, I'm not wearing a mask anymore. Um, by that contrast though, like, so Tulsa, I feel like is over it. Tulsa, the, the, the pandemic is a, a past tense phenomenon, but there's plenty of places that never experienced it at all, or at least never acknowledged that they were experiencing it. So if I go out to communities, maybe 40 minutes outside of Tulsa, like these are places that never had masks or vaccines. And, uh, and my state in particular is abysmal in terms of vaccination rates. It's like 37%. And, and uh, at that point, like I, I got my second dose, uh, I don't know, like two or three months ago, I got mine reasonably early. And when I went, the, um, the pharmacist was unnecessarily effusive with gratitude that I bothered showing up because apparently a lot of people sign up and just don't go. And, uh, and there's, there's just all these folks here, like again, 37%, what's that should be 63% that just don't feel like getting a vaccination. And, uh, and so like they never, they're not even, they're, they're pre pandemic. They never experienced the pandemic or at least they didn't think they did. And, and so there's, there's sort of pockets of like Vermont, conversely, Vermont actually is a, a post pandemic. Their, their vaccination rate is above 70% at this point. So like Vermont has opened it up. There are no restrictions. They're over the hill. Congratulations, Vermont. Well done. Meanwhile, there are other places that just have these abysmal rates. So you've got pockets of denial. You've got places like, like Jen was describing that are still in it. You've got places that are over it. Uh, and and I, the, the one thing that I do notice that I think is kind of a, um, a hanger on effect to all of this is even in places that are very, very open, like where I am right now in Tulsa, I've found that events haven't really come back, at least regular events. People are throwing parties. People are doing, you know, going out, going to bars and things. But like uh, all the all of the recurring events I find are still online. Like there's not no one's doing like book club and stuff in, in houses. And, and so there seems to be a kind of lagging effect for things that involve regularly convening in person everywhere. You know, you hit on something that I think is fascinating, which is the places that have held on to it longer seem to be the places that did well with it. Like they were they 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 implemented things. It was a good idea they did. They kept their their numbers down like Washington. Washington had, you know, considering they were among the first places to get cases of COVID, did remarkably well throughout the last year and a half. They've 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 done well on cases, they've done well on deaths. And yet it it's almost like, you know, this this exercise in human nature where if you've been careful about this thing, we we crossed the horizon line where it was no longer a spring break where we all did something weird for a little bit. It's a year and a half. That's just life at that point. And, and I, I wonder whether or not that recedes. And, and here's where I want to go with this next question, which is how this intersects with government. Uh, by the time people hear this, it'll be a couple days ago, but it is today when we record it, uh, governor Cuomo of New York will officially not renew his emergency powers that he had throughout the COVID crisis. It's become a point of contention in California that Gavin Newsom has not. Uh, the big policy question there is, well, is there going to be the political capital to reauthorize emergency powers? Should there be another uh, a spread of this? Newsom has decided he is going to wait and see. Cuomo uh, uh, has decided not, which is interesting because they're both kind of in potential trouble. Jen, do you think that that there is a point in which we need to uh, make a decision as a populace on whether or not our, our governors kind of have these sort of 
extended powers or is this just the, the same wait and see process that we've had for the last year and a half with this unpredictable disease? Well, I think with these situations, we all look to Health and Human Services and the CDC and the federal government to kind of be the leader here. And what was so strange with this pandemic is that because it started in the Trump administration, we didn't really have them to look to. (laughs) So this did go to a state level response in the beginning. And I think that that's starting to shift back to a federal guidance, because even in this conversation, we've talked about, you know, the CDC said that we could take off the masks. We're all looking to them again because I think we feel like they're caring again. And um, when Health and Human Services says that the emergency is over, that's when a lot of stuff in like the CARES Act, you know, is going to go away. I mean, there's a lot of things that are tied to that particular emergency declaration. And so for me, in my head, COVID, I don't care what the governors say, especially since I travel so much. COVID's not over until the federal government says it's over because there's so many things that are decided at the federal level, especially when it comes to, you know, assistance for community health centers and vaccine distribution. I mean, there's a lot that's tied to that emergency end date. So that's kind of like the end date for me. But just living out in the wild, we also have to think about corporate governance. We have federal government, we have state government, but then we have corporate governance. So like right now, I'm living in a Marriott. And what I'm noticing is that people are doing what Marriott says to do when you walk in the door. Right now, they're still requesting that everyone wears masks. And when I see the staff wearing masks, I feel like it's the respectful thing to do, even though I know the CDC says I can take it off. I'm allowed to come in this building and do whatever I want. But these people that work here and the company that owns this building, they are still saying that these are the rules inside of this place. Whole Foods is requiring that people wear masks. So I feel like when the corporations decide that we are done with a lot of this, that's going to be a part of it, too, because your state can say a lot of things. But if every single errand you run is requiring this covid behavior, well, then that's kind of setting the rules to setting the rules, too. So, um, yeah, I think there's just a lot of different governing going on. And then there's governing governing right down to the level of the family. You know, like there's members Mm -hmm. of my family that are still not meeting with other members because they don't agree on COVID stuff. So it's just there's different levels of government here and they're all making their own decisions. Heaton, you got to I need a I need a policy wonk answer out of you on this on this emergency powers thing. You're you're probably the friend of mine the most that would get worked up over a a, a, a extended forever emergency powers. Uh, yeah. Hold. Well, and, and I read a lot of Roman history, so I'm always very concerned about, you know, the, the, the deputization of, of emergency powers and that kind of thing. I, I think, by the way, now we all know the first line of Heaton's Tinder bio. Yes, I read a I lot, read of, a lot Roman of Roman history. history. That's right. Yeah, it's uh, it, it, yeah, it's man, the amount of the amount of amount of dates I get from reading I Claudius <laughs> is just astonishing. Uh, I think it's very healthy to to be skeptical and wary of emergency powers. It's always any any authority in general, be it corporate or be it government. I think you know let, let's all be careful of accumulations of power. Right, um, having sunset provisions for these things makes sense to me. Uh, I I am less worried now than I was at the beginning of all of this because I thought at the beginning of COVID that we were apt to see a kind of nine eleven type um, inflation of 
government bureaucracy and atrophy of civil rights because I, TSA, I think, is kind of bloated. And I, I say that because I don't actually know how effective it is because it won't release its numbers on how many people it detains that are that are terrorists. So like, I, I don't know, right? I've not seen that with this. And I think most of the nonsense around the atrophying of rights is just bloviating culture war craziness. Like it, like, like the, the amount of people that I've seen that think that like, Wearing a mask to go into a grocery store is akin to going into a Holocaust camp or something is insane. It's like we're yeah. asking you we're asking you to wear a sneeze guard for Christ's sake. That's what you're doing. You're wearing a sneeze guard so you don't kill old people. This is not something that is a massive like the stuff you should be worried about happened 30 years ago. They're taking your money to give it to corn farmers and build bombs, and you let that happen because you're a lazy moron. And now you're worried about masks? Great. Uh I think in terms of where the government says, um the, the emergency powers, I don't really know it state by state so much. Um, what I am concerned about coming out of this is that vaccines have become more and more politicized than they already were. They've now become a touchstone of the culture war, which is horrible. Like if you go back 15 years, most of the anti-vax people were kind of hippie progressives types. Like if, if you looked at the data, the people that were most likely to not have their children vaccinated were, were living. There's, there's like a specific island on the coast of Oregon that's like, you know, 99 percent progressive. And it was it was kind of the uh, like a. Uh, uh, Elizabeth McCarthy, um, uh, you know, I, I have crystals and I don't want to put things in my body's kind of stuff. And now that that onus is flipped. So like here in Oklahoma, where I am, uh, the governor just signed a law saying schools can't forbid anybody from attending if they haven't been vaccinated. And I'm looking at that going that we crossed that hill rightly. Years ago, where we went, if you want to go to a public school, you have to show uh, you have to show uh, um, a certificate saying that your kid has been vaccinated for measles, mumps, and rubella. Just basic things we don't want breaking out because of herd immunity and all the stuff we've been going over. And now that is we're going the other direction, saying no. Not only are we going to affirm that you have private ownership of yourself and what you put on your body within the private sphere, we are also going to allow you to do that within the public sphere and specifically at public institutions. We're not going to let you, uh, uh, we're not going to compel you to join us in all of this stuff. And that, that to me is a, a bigger concern of what might happen in the future. Well, let me, let me, but some defense for those wary about the emergency, the emergency acts, at least in California, having wrote out the vast majority of the pandemic there, I can understand specifically if you're a small business the idea of like, okay, can we get back to a point in which I at least know or have any sense of when I'll be able to operate my business and sure. at what threshold, like, you know, if, 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 if the Delta variant gets above X, do I need to start worrying if it goes beyond Y? Like, should I begin to start budgeting for the fact that I, I'm not going to be able to operate when I'm shut down? Do I have any sense of how long it's going to could uh, going to be? Because a lot of the places that are still open now, I think probably deserve at least some level of assurance that like they can or at least heads up in a way that didn't happen and can't happen uh, with at least the same leadership. If if, you know, they can just flip the switch because there's enough people on Twitter yelling about it. Sure. And, and Justin, that's probably where my own geographic uh, tunnel vision is, is coming into me, not really appreciating these things. In Oklahoma, the places that have masks are basically record shops that require you to wear a mask. Yeah. Like it's Whole Foods, 
and 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 certain locations that are doing it. But otherwise, I know of no business in Oklahoma that is you know in any way having to abide by uh, closed doors or alternately by you know a limited amount of seating. Um, you're you're right. The business community has a, a a good reason to want a lack of ambiguity in these things. And if there are states that are still shut down, which for me seems unfathomable, just because I've been living in one that's not, uh, that is that is an issue in no, the no, conversation. No. And, we should and, be and having. so California is open now. Okay. Now. So it took a while. It took longer than they, they shut down earlier and they stayed closed longer than, than most states. So, you know, I, 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 get, I, also, I, I get it. I also understand as someone who also spent my entire COVID in California, I understand why Gavin Newsom wants to keep the power to shut down certain places. So like last night I was watching BBC World News and Anthony Fauci was talking and he was saying that the people that are unvaccinated are the ones that are in the danger of the Delta variant. So they're not worried about it being another national surge and all of us yeah. have to shut down and whole states are shutting down, but they're worried about pockets. Well, then you look at a state like California. This is a huge state. And I've been to the parts that are not San Francisco and Los Angeles. There are a lot of basically red state portions of mm -hmm. California where this virus is, there's a lot of people that aren't getting vaccinated and you might have to use those emergency powers to restrict movement in those local pockets if there is another variant. Like we have this Delta variant, it is super contagious. And so they're worried about that. And so I understand what Newsom is doing. Cause like you said, if he goes and tries to get the emergency powers back, that's yeah. a whole new scandal for a man who's under a recall. And so he's keeping what he has. And my concern will not begin until the states are having emergency powers that the federal government is willing to give up. As long as the federal emergency is still ongoing, I'm not really freaking out about any governors state. keeping their powers to keep their state under control, especially huge states. You know, the little ones are a little bit different, but huge states like California, you have to manage it piece by piece. Well, let's talk about when and if the federal worm will turn on this particular issue. Uh, President Joe Biden had set a goal. Seventy percent of America having having at least one shot by July 4th, which is coming right up. They have now conceded that they will likely not hit that target, but they're not going to be terribly far off and they're going to frame it as a win no matter what, which I think is basically fair. What has also been reported is that this will be unofficially the turning of the tide for the administration, that now they are going to slowly it's going to be second priority, the COVID stuff. First priority will be the economy, which has had its own stumble. So uh, from your perspective, Jen, as somebody who looks at uh, specifically all these funding tie-ins for like the CARES Act and all the subsequent legislation, what does that mean in terms of the federal government's relationship to both the states and the citizens as they begin to officially piece by piece sort of turn down the uh, warnings on COVID? I mean, the Biden administration can say that July 4th is some kind of turning point, but it, until my friends and family are able to find somewhere to put their kids all day, every day, like I don't see yeah. this economy turning around all that quickly. I mean, we're dealing with people that still can't go back to work because the schools were closed until like five minutes ago and then they open up and now it's summer. And so I'm finding that in my own personal life, daycares are full. And a lot of them are running at limited capacity because of COVID, because of their own worries about 
having a bunch of unvaccinated children coming into their homes. A lot of these smaller daycares are at-home daycare, so their own children are are in danger. And until we have a situation, which might be September when school returns, that these parents once again have childcare. You know, this labor shortage, I honestly think that that's what it's all about because I kept um, I was delayed going to Vegas for hours and hours and hours. And the pet in the pilot was saying it was because of the labor shortage. And it wasn't like the stewardesses weren't coming back to work, but they were even saying, I was like, what is this? And they were like, yeah, a lot of people just can't come back to work yet. Like they don't have anywhere to put their kids. Mm-hmm. So um, there's a lot of other things that need to get done, regardless of what Biden says. They can go ahead and message all they want. But there are real world problems that us peasants are dealing with that until they're solved, we're not coming back to work. Uh, I have no acknowledged children. So I I am approaching this (laughs) as a bachelor in it. That that, that to me, as I understand it, is kind of the crux here, right? Because if I'm only looking at adults, if I'm only looking at the adult part of this equation, I'm kind of like, okay, like at this point, at least in my state, if you don't have the vaccine, it's because you've decided not to have a vaccine. Roll that dice, buddy. I know the towns that don't want to get vaccine also have the highest amount of diabetes. So I think it's dumb. But if you want to do it, roll the dice. But but I guess the, the bigger issue is for people that are uh, or for kids that are not old enough to get the vaccine. Parents are worried that they are going to put their children at risk because they're they're in that that situation where they're still subject to other people getting ill, but not able to be inoculated to prevent it. Yeah. I mean, I know some families that are still basically acting like they're on lockdown because the kids are unvaccinated. So the parents, because they feel like even though they're vaccinated, could still contract the virus. The parents are still kind of limiting their interaction with society, even though they're vaccinated because they're worried about the kids. And then if you look on the other end of these daycare centers, they have to be worried because they're still in a situation where all of their customer customers are unvaccinated. We know that kids can get the virus and can get long covid type of conditions. I mean, we always talk about the deaths, right? Like kids don't die from COVID, but like they're having brain problems. They're having all Mm. of these long effects um, that adults are getting when they get COVID. So when you look at that situation on the childcare side and the parent side, those concerns are equaling parents that otherwise would be vaccinated out in the world. Mm. They're still not out in the world, whether that means working or shopping or going to events or doing all these other things that would be considered normal. Until the kids are able to be normal, that's a lot of adults that are stuck too. Right. And and that's something that will not change until we hit that 70% uh, herd immunity threshold, right? Will it? I don't know if even that will do it? it. Yeah. I don't think that there's a magical line. I mean, again, I think that's what the Biden administration kind of wants. They want there to be a moment of exhalation and they want there to be a moment of like, hey, we the greatest vaccination rollout ever in the history of the planet. We did it, America. Uh, uh, and And look, there are... Scientific. I mean, if you look at where we are now in terms of cases, like it is, it is down. We're we're flirting with, if not below the ten thousand cases a day threshold, which, considering our population, uh, begins to bring it into a more negligible level. Uh, uh, specifically, neutralizing the idea that it's most dangerous because it's so contagious. So, if we are containing and 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 making that less of a of a potent issue, then that is a win. However, I don't know if this is a psychic injury, if this is something like like Jen said, that that is about our own internal point of view. And you're not going to drop your kid off at daycare until you feel like you are able to do it. Then, I mean, I don't know. Like like this, this feels like something that that, uh, you know, Oprah is more uh, equipped to deal with than Joe Biden. 
Yeah. And even that 70% number, if they were to hit that, that's an average of all of us all over the country. Like we could have a hundred percent inoculation on the coast, but then damn near zero in the middle. And we're going to have a big old problem in the middle. Yeah. So once we hit that number, I'm not feeling like I'm going to take a trip down to, you know, Mississippi anytime soon. It's just like, we have to look at this problem on a more local level, right down to the families to, well, I, to I, figure I, it out. I'm not thinking that this will ever be solved if that's the case then, because like we, we, we've got the Delta variant, which I think originated in India, but it's mostly kicking, or like I hear, I hear in the news, mostly kicking around in Britain. Um, I mean, like one, one of the possibilities from all of this, and granted I'm, I'm out of the loop with the scientific community is that this just becomes kind of a flu like thing. And, and it, it might have another variation that pops out and mutates. And presumably the, the base level vaccine we have, will continue to offer some degree of immunity or at least mitigate the, the circumstances. But but the idea that we're going to get to 100% and wipe it out like smallpox, I, that that could take a while. It, it could be that well, we do that and another variant comes in and it it, it, it moves around. So I, I don't know. I don't know. When, I don't know when victory over over COVID day would be. Well, I think victory was kind of snuffed out when at the World Health Organization level, they decided not to waive the IP waiver on the vaccines last year. Because instead of every country going and making their own vaccines and all of us all at once getting vaccinated, we're requiring the entire world to buy them from these lucky few companies. And that is still the case. You know, the Biden administration has said that they support this IP waiver that would allow the recipe to be distributed. But we're already sitting here in June of 2021, and it takes a long time to ramp this up. And like you said, the variants are coming and these manufacturers are banking on the variants. So as a human race, the smart thing to do would have been to get these vaccines in as many arms as possible, but they are banking on having variants so that they can give us booster shots. So I think that that ship has sailed and this is going to be a problem. I think it was kind of by design by the corporate structure of governance on a global scale. And what they're doing right now, what Fauci was saying is they're testing the vaccine on all the children and all the different ages. And they said by the end of the year, they're going to have emergency use authorization, or at least they hope so for all children ages. And that brings up a whole other round of like, do you, do you not? And um, yeah, I think the vaccines are unfortunately our best hope. And well, they, they, they've certainly been the most effective, right? Like, yeah. like they, they have, they have r- remarkably, slowed spread and death if you look at you know uh uh, just check out the last six months of israel the united kingdom and the united states and compare that to other western democracies even in france and spain and and italy and uh, even places like uh uh, that have done really well with covid like uh, australia They, they still they have not vaccinated in 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 the same kind of way japan as well like they're they are dealing with this on a level that we are not the question then becomes well when is it enough like when do we cross a a a threshold or is this going to be a permanent problem and if it is a permanent problem then what is government's reaction to it are are we going to be passing covid relief bills uh, uh you know is, is biden going to be running on covid relief bill number 6 when he when he runs in 24 well i mean we're just talking about catching the virus, we have to also keep in mind all the people that have already gotten it. So Mm -hmm. I just did an episode on long COVID, which the reason I did it is I watched a hearing about this, this phenomenon, which is where these symptoms last for months and months and months. I know a girl that hasn't been able to smell anything since August. And we don't know how long this lasts because it's new. So 
they don't know. They think it's somewhere between 10% or even two thirds of the people that got COVID. And we're not talking about just the people that were hospitalized. There are people, lots of them that were asymptomatic. And then six weeks later, they go to the doctor with some symptom that is related to COVID. And we don't even know if some of these people that are coming in with symptoms had COVID to begin with. Because, you, I mean, think about what happened in March of 2020. If you thought you had COVID, unless you had all three of the main symptoms, they mm. weren't even letting you get a test. Right. And so we have literally millions of people in our country, and God only knows how many around the world, that are going to have these long-term consequences of this disease. It's really hard to diagnose. And they're denying people care that don't have a positive COVID test on their record, even though a lot of people weren't able to get tests if they were in the first round of infections. And so we have two different things that we're going to be dealing with for a long time. There's going to be these variants because we didn't get the vaccine to, out to the rest of the world. I mean, Justin just did a really good summary of the countries that are doing well. None of them are in Africa. <laughs> you know, there's nope. a lot of humans there. And so we have that side of it. But then we also have this long term problem they're finding that long COVID, um, it's affecting people's brains. It's debilitating. People can't work. So yes, we are going to need more bills. And what's terrifying to me is that these people are stuck still in our private insurance-based healthcare system. And so we're also going to have a lot of people that are going to be on disability, unable to work, also unable to prove that they can get those government safety net programs to help them. This COVID problem is going to be with us for a very long time. And if the government does its job, yes, there will be future bills because there have to be. We didn't take care of the virus fast enough. It's it's here to stay. All right, all right, all right. I know, I know, I know, I know. Things are going really, really good. But I want to stop here just to remind everybody that the reason that this happens twice a week, the reason that I am zombie-like shambling my way into this Friday podcast, despite the fact that I am sleep-deprived and my feet hurt and my legs hurt from walking around the, 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 the five burrows over the last four days, is because you guys demand it, you guys make it happen, and you guys support me at TakePoliticsSeriously.com. One quick reminder that if you are a patron at TakePoliticsSeriously.com, there's a lot of ways you can do it. Just kick me a buck, a recurring buck, to be part of the Big Tent. Or if you want exclusive content, be a part of our $3 club. That is two bonus episodes each and every week. Our Sunday, Sunday, Sunday edition, the indispensable Rosetta Stone for your political week. I break down all of the narratives coming out of the Sunday shows and I tell you exactly what to look for throughout the next seven days. And also, we've got our late edition, our Thursday edition. I record the Friday episode before that. So the latest breaking news that you hear out of PX3 is on that Thursday podcast. You can support us by heading over to Take Politics Seriously right now and taking advantage of those options. Thank you to everybody who has done it. I never feel more grateful to you guys than when I am just coming off the road. Again, nobody does this 
Nobody sends their podcast hosts out there to do it on a fully private budget. It's all corporate media except for me out there in those scrums. Trust me, I've been in enough of them to let you know that that is a fact. Thank you. TakePoliticsSeriously.com. Let's get back to the trifecta, huh? I mean, but also, all right, so here's here's the, the, the one question that I will, I've been asking myself throughout this entire process, and I, I want both of your guys' opinion on it, because it is in our nature, and I think it, it is a specific American trait to point out how much America sucks. If anything else, <laughs> like, like self-loathing is, is both an inherent quality and probably our greatest strength. Like that we are, are we, we very rarely look to like, oh, well, this is kind of how it's always done. If anything, that gets us more mad that it, it was done for the last 100 years. We get very angry about it. That being said, with with the understanding of what we've seen with this disease, with however we want to categorize where it came from and how vicious it is and, and how debilitating it is, where are we now in terms of how preventable was this spread from the United States of America's perspective? Let's imagine ourselves as an island, even though we know we're not. Uh, and how much of it was just a biblical flood that you can put, you could have put more nails on the door if you wanted to. You could have put 50 instead of five, but at the end of the day, it's, it was going to go out with the waves anyway. I, I think you can almost look at this as like a three act structure of like, like, I don't think we did particularly well during the first act. We're doing pretty well during the third act. We like, and I'll say globally, like globally, while there are things that we could have done, the, the thing that is optimistic to think about all of this is the astonishing speed with which we develop not just a vaccine, but a new kind of vaccine on a global level. Like you think about how long it took us to knock out smallpox and how long it took us to, to knock out rubella and all these different things. It took, you know, decades and decades to, to, to do it. We've, we've technologically, everything's been fantastic. In terms of how America handled it, not great first act, great third act. And, and you're seeing a weird inverse with a lot of other countries that had a good first act that are now not doing a good third act. You mentioned Japan, which is a great example of a country that was good at stopping the contagion or at least uh, halting its its uh, its income into the country, but set a very low level of, of vaccinated uh, of vaccination. I think Japan's at like 7% or something. It's it's incredibly low, right? So we're doing very well in that regard at, at uh, I think, 67% um, first vaccine installment. Um, in terms of, of I, I guess, how well we could have done, um, I don't think perfection would have ever been it. Um, I, I think that it's it's almost best to just compare ourselves to other large, other large first world countries. I, I I think the only two countries that have really just like knocked it out of the park and done a fantastic job at every step of this process are Iceland and New Zealand. And I think the fact that they are actual literal islands with reasonably small populations plays a huge role in that. So it's better to look at like. Canada, France, England, Germany, countries like that, and, and see what our relative death rates are. And then also cross-apply that to how old the populations are, because that's also going to affect it. I feel like in the first act, it all had to be global, because this was obviously a virus that was going around the world. And if we were going to write a book, you know, how could we have done this right as a human race? It would have been a giant global lockdown for like two months. That way the virus couldn't move. And that obviously didn't happen. And so we have this UN structure where the world was supposed to come together and, 
you know, work on all these plans. And it just didn't happen. Everybody did it on their own. And then here in the States, we did kind of the same thing where we have one country, but then we let 50 different plans go forward. And it was obviously we're able to go over state lines. This virus never stopped moving around. And there was also the fact that our federal government was led by Donald Trump and he didn't care. So there was that. And so I think the first act we did abysmally. When it comes to the third act, I can see saying that we're doing great here because so many of us have been vaccinated. So if you're looking at it as how are we doing just as America, like, sure, we're doing great, but we're doing great because we took this technology that actually wasn't developed all that recently. I mean, the mRNA vaccines, they've been working on these for decades at the National Institutes of Health. These are taxpayer, you know, we paid for this research and especially Moderna. They partnered with the government to make that vaccine. I consider the Moderna vaccine our vaccine, as in the U.S. taxpayer's vaccine. And we And then Pfizer licensed it. It, 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 It's the exact same thing. They licensed our technology. And instead of us using the power that we have as the United States government that paid for it, to give that recipe to everyone in the world and tell Moderna and Pfizer, like, you know, you can make plenty of profits on this, but they're not going to be patented monopoly profits for forever. We decided to protect their patents. And so now we have these variants going around the world when months ago we could have shared that recipe and really knocked this out around the world. So what I'm seeing is like, yes, selfishly, a lot of us have the vaccine, but there are so many people around the world that I am so ashamed that we could have helped and we chose not to. We decided to prioritize corporate profits for a drug they did not invent. And these are the consequences that people are feeling around the world. So I actually think I'm ashamed of what we've done in the third act too, even though I'm sitting here vaccinated, just got back from Vegas. Like I feel extremely blessed and privileged and all of those things. But um, until this is knocked out around the world, we ain't done. And I do think that this could come back to bite us. Our selfishness, we're going to open up our borders and people are going to travel here from overseas. And we have a lot of unvaccinated people because like Andrew said, we have politicized getting vaccines. We're still in danger because of our selfishness. And so I, I'm ashamed of a lot of what we've done during COVID from the beginning right up until right now. Picture it, friends. Jen Briney at the Bellagio, splitting on tens and frowning, thinking about the <laughs> shameful display that the United States has had throughout the COVID crisis. Uh, well, let, let me let me ask you this, though, Jen, because I think you have made a very, very uh, salient point in terms of the first act. If we are talking about the global we, then you can't ignore the fact that it now seems likely that this virus was was out and about for two months before we even it was even on our radar, there has been a a conversation about exactly what China's role uh, uh, going forward from this should be. Or you know, is there something that if we're talking about a global community, if we're going to pretend like we do have a global community, should they face any repercussions for not? alerting the rest of the world that this was out here, whether it was a zoonotic virus or something that was leaked out of a lab. I mean, we got the information from them when we got it and we're not sure yet where it came from. I mean, that's really all we know is that we don't know. However, what this has exposed is that we do know that there are labs that are in China and other parts of the world that Mm -hmm. are making viruses stronger and more deadly for whatever purposes they're doing it for. They say that they're doing it so that they can test their cures on it and, you know, they're all, you know, making miracles. But is it smart as humans to allow viruses to be strengthened at all? For research purposes, definitely for, 
you know, war purposes, I could also see, you know, Dr. Evil up there cooking up a virus to release out upon the world. And that's where the more conspiratorial people are going with it. But I was listening to, I don't even remember what I was listening to. Um, but I did hear such great source here, Jen, but I did hear that, um, (laughs) that these lab leaks happen all the time, but this is just one that had more consequences. If that is in fact, they're actually, there's fairly good documentation that, that the really, really tight lab leaks we have, and this is a global phenomenon of just, you have enough labs, you have enough situations. Eventually something gets out there. There was a, it was, it was either bubonic plague or smallpox here about 15 years ago where they just found it in the basement of the old lab. Like someone had like moved oh it and forgot it and left it there. And that just at some point that kind of happens. So when you have incredibly dangerous strains of things, if you're developing them, you should assume eventually one of them is going to get out. Exactly. And so I'm more focused on we know now for sure that these labs are making this type of stuff. And so I'm more interested in prevention than punishment. I don't really feel the need to punish China as long as we, on a global scale, are going to enact some kind of treaty to say we don't do this anymore. As humans, we're just done making these viruses. That's something I feel well, like we, would I mean, be we, we have more useful response. Like the United States has signed on to such a treaty since the Nixon administration. We're forbidden in germ warfare. Um, and so like presumably China's not, I guess, because I don't know who all the signatories were. But like we, like we were kind of going that direction in the 60s and uh, decided against it and no longer have scientists working on, on weaponized germs in, in this country. But what is that line between weaponized germs and helpful germs that we are using so we can make sure that if indeed there is a pandemic that we are not caught with our pants down, which is the theoretical reason why these strains are being strengthened so we can come up with the medicine that we you know, would, would need in case this happens. Well, I, 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 we I, I, guess I go drinking with like- a lot of those black site guys and I'm, I really can't say. I would, I would feel like <laughs> I would be betraying their trust if I, if I said what Nelson told me. Well, we also have to look at the definition of we because- we do know that our money goes to places through the defense department or to state, the state department to, they outsource the things that they don't want to do. So we outsourced the black sites. We outsource this type of research. We do know that there was some kind of financial link between the national institutes of health and that Wuhan lab. We don't know what they are. I don't know the specifics, but we also need to start keeping a closer eye on what we're contracting to do. Plausible deniability, right? So it's like we've signed these contracts. Are we actually following them. I think that's what we need to find out too with our own culpability. But as far as China is concerned, there should be a global, global, truly global treaty that says enough of this in the entire world as a, not to punish China, but just to be like, okay, we're drawing the line here. Everyone has to sign it. There will be real consequences if you don't. I feel like that's more useful than just like sanctions. Well, but, that'd be but great. Can I, I, would, can, I would love it if we could get them involved in that. Like, that'd be fantastic. Uh, yay. Sure. Yeah. I mean, also, it's like, can there be reconciliation without truth? Like, like I think yeah. that to me is the biggest thing that we that that is the reason why I'm stuck on some of the lab league stuff is that like, I, I don't want to hand wave it. I think it's really dangerous for us to hand wave it and say, ah, it was either a, a zoonautical or a lab leak, whatever, we're affecting it now. No, I think we we absolutely need to know how this how this happened, not only for scientific reasons, but also for scientific uh, scientific ethics. Like yeah. this is this is a crucial thing that we need to, to me, the difference between, oh, well, it was a wet market 
all right, that's, you know, in, 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 in the great game of life, we, we, we really uh, pulled a bum card. But if it's a lab leak, then that is something that we need to say, look, you, you need these structures here. You need these safety precautions. And in barring uh, understanding that eventually some of this stuff gets out, we need to be transparent. We need to be honest about, about when this stuff is out. Because, mm-hmm. you know, if, if we're not, you're, you're at a situation like this where we're, we're acting like, we weren't able to get this thing under control when the horse was out of the barn months before we was even on our radar. Well, I, I think, Justin, that you've, you've struck onto something, which is regardless of whether this was a lab leak or whether it came from a wet market, we didn't have the trumpet blown nor the time we could have had because it happened within an authoritarian regime that is opaque, whose number one goal is to perpet- uh, perpetuate an authoritarian regime. The goal of Beijing is to stay in power and increase their power. That is their number one goal. Goals one through 50 are stay in power and get more power. That's what Beijing wants, right? Goal 51 is help Chinese people. Goal 52 is better parking. Like it's, they, they, any authoritarian regime, this is, I'm making a statement about authoritarians. Authoritarians don't like releasing any information that makes their regime look bad, which means that if they had come out and said, guys, really bad news. Oh shit. There is this like incredibly bad virus that is very, very fast and is proliferating. Like the, I mean, granted, I'm not nitpicking Chinese media, but what I did see over the beginning of COVID was like, oh, this province had three people die. Well, that's nonsense. Three people didn't die. That's, that's a state number that's being cooked up in order to make the regime look like it's containing it so that the people in it won't revolt. And in, in that regard, I think China has culpability in this because they they could have sounded the alarm regardless of where the origin came from. So then what is the role of the American government then? You know, we, we've recognized heard, we've heard Taiwan things- as the legitimate Chinese government. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like we can get our own money in check. I feel like we need to know where our tax money goes and where it, what it funds. Um, and so I think that's one thing that we could demand as taxpayers right now is to know if we are doing the same thing that we're accusing China of doing in that lab and then using the power that we have on the international stage to gather our allies to demand, you know, I guess promises that it won't happen again. But I mean, China has a lot of contracts, you know, they're doing belt and road. They're doing a lot of business Mm -hmm. with other countries around the world. And so I do feel like if the rest of the world were to pressure China to stop doing this type of research, it would work. But that also means the rest of the world has to stop doing it too. And I just don't believe for a second that they're the only ones. I just don't. Oh, I don't think that they're the only ones. Uh, I, I do suspect that based on the relationship that Western democracies have with the press, that if there was a lab leak either by hook or by crook. I don't think that American or European Union bureaucrats would be any more likely than Chinese bureaucrats to admit that they really, 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 really screwed up and they might be on the hook for a global uh, uh, catastrophe. I do think at some point somebody's friend is going to call a newspaper and eventually that is going to eventually get out. Yeah, I, I you're do not going to shoot is- all the reporters to report on it in, in, a, in a European Union country or an American country. Or absolutely, the American yeah. country. And and I am as as cynical as the next guy about you know the the, the state of media these days. But I do know that th- it's very hard to keep something like that from getting out through the cracks in in a place where you don't you know shut down Twitter when you don't like what is being said on on any given day. But I actually, no, instead, what you do is you have members of Congress pressure Facebook and Twitter and YouTube to take down anything mentioning 
I don't know, a lab leak, because that's exactly what they did. The U.S. government got their tech buddies to censor this story. Mm-hmm. So until 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 John Stewart until John Stewart joked about it. How funny was that? Like like the same stuff that would get your Facebook page deleted six months ago on the first Tonight Show uh, or or a uh, late late or late show that Colbert has in the studio. John Stewart just goes out. You could write that. I wish we had a time machine. Frivolous uses for a time machine just to have somebody's aunt write that on Facebook six months ago. Just word for word, everything that Jon Stewart said in script form and have her uh, account be deleted because it was dangerous misinformation that was kindling anti-Asian hate. We have well, to get our own house in order. We well, talk a lot of shit on China, but well, I mean, yeah, of course, of course, of course. I mean, uh, uh, but again, that that is that is America's superpower. We do, we do, we we constantly talk about how bad we suck. We do what we want. One, one, one thing that that does put me in a weird position is I don't know. There's not a great way. I I, I would love to pressure China uh, either either to own it up. It'd be really cool if China, like I don't know, if China funded all of the vaccines. Maybe that would be cool. Uh, like I'm I'm in favor of this stuff. But me, me uh, being okay, me, can, can, consider considering the testing results on their own vaccine, I yeah. think it's fine that we did it. <laughs> yeah. Well, but like like me 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 being both a a uh, a free market guy and a not loving war guy. Uh, I like there's not really a good option to put that pressure on them for me. I, I guess ultimately it would be it would be either uh, multilateral sanctions or it would be using trade as leverage, something that I've railed on Trump about for four years. But I, I suppose that's one of the things that could compel them to go in a particular direction. I just feel like if other countries were allowing the same behavior and paying for it, then punishing China is just not useful. It just happened to them. The lab leak happened to them. It could have happened to anyone else that was doing this type of research. Do, do so you, I, like, I think the research is the problem, not the country. So, so I like I, I, I do not know the answer to this. What what countries are engaging in germ warfare research that we are aware of? And is this is this something that presumably all developed countries are doing? Is this certain regimes that are doing it? Because I don't know. And I, again, I don't know the signatories for the, the germ warfare treaty that we're partial to. I heard a list. Didn't memorize it. Can't remember the source. So, <laughs> Presumably that treaty is either being flouted by global members or alternately there are enough non-signatories to make this of concern internationally. I don't know. Okay. I, uh, me, well, me neither. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know the ins and outs of it. But I think well, that's one of the problems is we don't know a lot of this because we're not policing it as a country. We're not releasing this information about what we ourselves are doing. So it's, this is clearly a area that the public at large was not thinking about until this virus ended up in our population. And whether or not, I mean, even if it was someone ate bat soup, the fact that we now know that this research is being done, this is still something we can act on, even if it didn't cause COVID. It's still a danger. We're aware of it. We can still act as Americans to at least make sure that our government is not doing it ourselves, not funding it ourselves. And then where we can internationally discouraging. That's really all we can do. We can't change the Chinese government, but we can change our own. Well, this COVID conversation, much like the disease itself, has gone on way longer than I initially thought it was going to. <laughs> so uh, we, I don't think we're going to be able to get to the other topic that I had, which was infrastructure, how we define it and, and how it is going to eventually go through. Although I am sure whatever product 
uh, eventually passes through Congress is going to be something that will make for a a seven hour long episode of Congressional Dish uh, <laughs> because you are eventually going to have to read through all of it. Uh, you mentioned your long COVID episode, Jen. What else are you working on? Oh, my next episode, you guys. I watched a hearing where there was a recall that was done on baby beds. There was a bunch of children. I know it's so dark, but like there were a bunch of children that For died. Sale, and- one baby bed never used. <gasps> well, and used I found once. I found well, the exact baby used. bed. <laughs> it's on Poshmark right now. So they recalled it, but it's still out there in the world. And um, so that story is deter- disturbing enough. But then I found out the details about like why the government allowed it to stay on our shelves for 10 years. And that's where the rabbit hole gets crazy. I mean, the police on the beat. Let's just say that the situation is not good. So that's the episode that I'm working on that I'll be releasing um, by the end of June. But yeah, just it's a disturbing but fascinating episode about product safety. The one that I'm very excited for you to eventually do, and I think I DM'd you about it, is... Uh, there was a bill that passed the Senate. We'll see in what form it winds up passing the House, but it is basic. It, it is basically a let's compete with China bill, which <laughs> even in the reporting was very vague on exactly how. It, all I know is that it's a lot of money going to a lot of people and anything that is as broad as we need to compete with China. And here's how the Senate is going to fix it is by a gigantic pile of money. The, my first thought was I cannot wait until it passes the house so I can actually know what the hell this bill is. When I listen to the congressional dish episode about it, dingleberries galore. I'm yeah. sure Whoa, it, when it's like, uh, it was just the, the, the word uh, cloud where it was like China competition, Schumer's pet pot project. I'm like, there's no way that this isn't just a a gigantic festival of of payoffs to friends and allies. A, a, a nuclear clown orgy of favors and crony capitalism. <laughs> That's it. That's it. Heaton, uh, I know you just released an episode with uh, our friend Brian Brushwood about uh, mm-hmm. uh, giving energy to political bullies and why you shan't. Uh, what else are you working on? Uh, yeah, that was a really fun episode. I, I encourage people to listen to it, particularly if you if you are a, a fan of uh, uh, Brian Brushwood. He, he came on uh, for a really good chat. Uh, I don't know how listeners of, of your show are, uh, but a lot of the people that are, are listeners of the political orphanage are just kind of nice and aren't sure why we get pushed around all the time by meet people. And uh, so I wanted to do an episode with Brian. I'm like, where, where is this bullying coming from? What's the root impulse of it? And how do we how do we either avoid it or confront it or something? Right. So that was a fun episode. Uh, next week, I've got Anne Applebaum coming on. She's a Pulitzer Prize winning writer. She just wrote a book called The Twilight of Democracy, The Seductive Allure of Authoritarianism. And she's going to come on to kind of talk about the canary in the coal mine of a dark global rise in authoritarianism. And we'll talk about what the root manifestation of that is, what the kind of personality type is that lends itself to that and how it manifests. And uh, and then the the one that I'm working on that's probably going to come out next month that, that I'm excited to do is I really want to do like a week of uh, of of shows plural on homelessness theme week theme week, theme yeah. week. oh it, man it's, but that's it's, not fun it's not it's not going to be as fun as Judge Week was but I but I want to do ah. like like a full like like where does homelessness come from what are the predominant uh, things that cause this what are the best solutions we've come up with I've I've already done a bunch of interviews and uh, am am looking to keep expanding that so that's that's something on the horizon. 
Well, you should make it and I'll listen to all the episodes and then me, you and Jen can all go to the Bellagio and very solemnly play backtrack what we think about the ills of all of humanity and our culpability in continuing them. Uh, For anybody who's listening to this as a fan of Andrew or Jen, I would like to uh, let everybody know, especially in the New York City area, I just completed an episode where I was out on the campaign trail with all of the primary candidates or at least three of the of the of the four major ones it was it was great it was it was one of my favorite things to do is to actually be out there and watch uh, uh campaigning in action including the most humiliating thing that ever happens like when you are daring to say that i and only i should be running a city of nine million people and you have a team of of people that believe in you that are out doing it. And the day before everybody goes to vote, you are out in Sunset Park, Brooklyn, trying to hand out flyers like you are, you know, trying to get kickbacks from a strip club in Vegas and being just denied by random people who just want to get to lunch and back. That has to be the biggest gulf of ego and humiliation that that just exists in 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 society. So hear me uh, uh, side by side with Catherine uh, 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 Garcia, who was doing exactly that. She was the third place finisher, at least on the first uh, ballot of that ranked choice vote. So go ahead and check out my live from New York City election special there. One last thing on the way out of here and uh, Heaton, I think I'll, I'll be breaking some news for you unless you saw this uh, earlier. Uh, unfortunately, we are offering. Did Andrew Yang drop out? God damn it! Every time well, I say did something, again. Nice. He wait, did, did he? Again. Did he? Did yeah. he really? He's out. <laughs> yeah, no, he God finished damn fourth. It. I, oh, okay, he finished fourth. He sucked. And by the way, here's the lesson: it's, it's already done. The the the, the thing that's already finished. I, I thought the election was uh, happening now, but they've already called it. Well, last yesterday was the or when we oh, were right. Tuesday. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. God, okay. Tuesday was the Tuesday was election day, and of those first place votes, Andrew Yang got fourth, which means that there's one thing that I want everybody here to that is listening to my voice to please understand forever. The people that ran Andrew Yang's New York City mayoral campaign was Tusk Strategies, the same people that ran. Michael Bloomberg's presidential campaign, which also was a famous, hilarious failure. Did, did Andrew Young so, at least win Guam in the <laughs> New York mayoral primaries? So all, all I want everybody to know, and I'm very bitter about the fact that Bloomberg flamed out so fast because I heard that his events full open bar and massively catered and they, and he failed <laughs> and before I was able to go take advantage of that. So screw you. But also uh, uh, if you ever hear that somebody is being, that their campaign is being run by Tusk Strategies, <laughs> run as far away as you yeah. can, or just bet the under. There's, there's no more safer money in my, in my personal opinion than to say anybody involved with either of those two campaigns don't know how to win a race with a high name value candidate. Uh, but may, no, may, but that's maybe, not I, maybe he'll finally come on my show now. We follow each other on Twitter and he will not respond <laughs> to anything. Maybe now he'll come on. We'll see. Maybe now. Maybe now. No, I wanted to uh, uh, offer our condolences. One of the most colorful personalities in all of both politics and technology, John McAfee, is, uh, is dead today. So oh, uh, dead wow. as we recorded. I uh, did uh, not uh, know that. That is breaking news to me. But you interviewed him on on the political orphanage. One of uh, uh, one of my favorite interviews of yours. Because it was he it was, was a colorful a, character. 
It, yes, uh, John John McAfee uh, to to speak uh, to to briefly give that man an epitaph uh, was a fascinating guy to interview, and uh, it was fascinating for me because it felt like I was J- John McAfee spoke entirely the way I would if I were trying to ferret James Bond out of my domed city using a speaker system. Just everything. <laughs> Hello, I'm John McAfee. Just this like like rumbling, ominous character. And the thing that was so funny about that interview was he like one of his one of his power moves, I guess, was just to say crazy stuff and have people yeah. go, what? And I would just roll with it. And he'd be like, yeah, and that, you know, that's why I think everybody should have a third arm gripping a knife. And I'd go, OK, uh, Lug nut tariffs. What do you think about that? It, it, it eventually <laughs> threw him off. Like about halfway through, you could see it started to weird him out. But I was just dealing with him. Like he's a very sane, rational, normal person, and uh, it was it was a fun interview. I'm sorry to hear that. I hope that his family's okay. Did, may, yeah. may I ask Justin? Did he die of natural causes, or did he die in a gunfight? I, gun fight, I or? literally this was just on out of the corner of my eye. I just saw this pop up on on Twitter, and I knew that you'd interviewed him, so I figured I'd bring I'm, it up at the end. Like, so I, like, uh, I, I, breaking I, news here. I, I am rooting for him to have gone out in an equally colorful way for his own benefit. I think that that would be fitting. I, I hope it was like a hotter balloon chase with Uzis or something. Uh, yeah. Uh, a man who lived such a colorful life uh, uh, deserved exactly uh, as colorful of a death as he so wanted. Mm-hmm. All right, guys, uh, that'll wrap it up for Andrew Heaton and Jen Briney. My name is Justin Robert Young. Politics, politics, politics is written and hosted by me, Justin Robert Young, for Dog and Pony Show Audio in Austin, Texas. The show is edited by Brett Stewart. Uh, If you want to go and say hello to Jen Briney of the Congressional Dish Podcast, you can do so by heading on over to px3guest.com. You can email me, theyoungamerican at gmail.com. And in fact, you want to know what I want to do we haven't been doing the mailbag on Fridays, but we have been getting some good questions. So here's what I would love to do. If you have big, burning questions about the world of politics, stuff that you would like me to do some research into, I would like to do a full episode, not where I'm just reading your uh, uh, reading your, 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 your feedback and, and then kind of commenting on it, But give me, like, prompts to do some research on. Because that's what I would like to do with one of these episodes, one of these Fridays, is just have you guys give me, send me on a bunch of uh, different trails, just things you wouldn't want to look up, or you have a general idea about it, but you want to get my my perspective on it. I want to do some deep dives. Help me with a community-driven deep dive episode by sending your questions and your quests to theyoungamerican at gmail.com. You can follow me on Twitter, px3tweets. My live streams are on px3live.com and my newsletter is at px3newsletter.com. You can share this podcast by going to px3podcast.com and you can get all of my merch at politicsmerch.com. Let's get to the money talk, huh? If you want to send me a one-time donation, you can do so at paypal.me slash payjury. If you would like to determine whether or not Venmo money is real, and by the way, it's not. It's not. It's not real. And 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 there are many people. In fact, here there is there was a great back and forth that happened here on my Venmo, wherein uh uh, let's see, let's see if I can find 
their name. There was a real rabbit season, duck season. Uh, uh, a Brian sent me a dollar and said, by the way, I'm on to you. Venmo money is real. To which another Brian sent me another dollar and said, other Brian is a liar. Venmo cash is absolutely not real. Would you like to weigh in on this battle of the Brian's? Please send me a dollar on Venmo, Justin-Young-20, and let me know which Brian you support, the one who believes Venmo money is real, or the one who believes that Venmo money is indeed just a random string of numbers on your phone. You can also hit me up on my cash app, px3cash, and checks and any physical items can be sent to P.O. Box. 153184 Austin, Texas 78715. Of course, if you want to get our bonus content, you head on over to takepoliticsseriously.com. $3 gets you two bonus podcasts each week, and $10 gets your name read at the end of the podcast, like the fine folks in the Titanic. $10 tier, including. Headphones Neil, Dr. G, the other half of Whiskey Wednesday, Idris, the government unfiltered podcast, 100-mile runner, Berkeley Stephen, Kathy Mag, Zombie Doc, D, really? Methuselah, honey fucker. The Jed, middle-aged Mike, Dotcom Junkie, Calamity Zap, D Laser, Lord Scale, De Quince, and Neely III, and Gloria Young for King of the New World Order. Utah, Jimmy Montana, Chad, David, Snuffies of Route 44. Charles, David, Olin and Angela, D.L., Miranda, Janelle, Jenny, Robert, Casey, Paul, the most conscientious nonpartisan listeners, Brad, D-Laser, Just Another Pilot, Will, Frozen Summers, Jay, Pink, and Andrew, one more time. You want to get your name read on the show? You can do so. Head on over. TakePoliticsSeriously.com. Ladies and gentlemen, this is normally where I would tell you what to look forward to next week on the show. Uh, But I'm very tired, so I'm going to fall down. I have no idea what's going to happen next week, but I promise you it'll be worth tuning into. Till next time, this is your old pal Justin Robert Young reminding you that some shows talk about politics, others talk about politics, and still more. Discuss politics, but this, this is the only show that dares. Discuss all three. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. (laughs) Dog and Pony Show Audio.